Hi, I'm Mary Pollard, a partner at Portland. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by John O'Brien, MBE, EMEA Managing Partner for 100, a collective of Omnicom marketing, digital, PR and creative agencies focused on purpose, and David Gallagher, President for Growth and Development for Omnicom Internationally. Following the publication of their new book, Truth Be Told, we'll discuss what it means to be a purpose-led business or leader post-pandemic and how to avoid being accused of wokewashing. This is To The Point. John, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Your new book on telling the truth is incredibly timely, and it's based on your conversations with a who's who of pioneering business leaders, from founders like Paul Lindley of Ella's Kitchen and Will King of King of Shaves, to Richard Walker of Iceland and Alex Mahon, who is the CEO of Channel 4. It's even got a foreword written by Klaus Schwab, the founder and chair of the World Economic Forum. And I think that who's who really indicates that this is a live issue for top tier leaders today. So thank you so much for making the time to join us. To start with, there are some big concepts that you cover in the book and the journey that we're on in terms of moving from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism is something that, John, I know you're particularly passionate about. It'd be great if you could capture that journey in a nutshell for our listeners. Yes, thanks, Mary, and it's great to be here. So we've had the best part of five decades of commitment to maximising shareholder value and what we often call the Friedman Doctrine. But after the financial crisis in 2008, we saw that this was really debunked because actually it was so focused on the narrow aspect of what shareholders were looking for, the rest of the stakeholders around a business were forgotten about. And even if you think back to Jack Welsh, who was probably its most famous and successful proponent, he then called it in 2009 the dumbest idea in the world. So most businesses then admitted that it had failed to take into account the wider responsibility that it had And that's all the emergence of what is talked about as stakeholder capitalism and, of course, is really uh, alluded to continually and specifically through Klaus Schwab's introduction to our book. And in short, what this reflects is that a business today, to be successful, to be able to prosper, it has to care for everybody that's influenced by that business. And we know that actually a business can either be successful or indeed be brought down, not just by shareholder or investor reaction, but also by employees, by customers. And as we note in the book, actually, even more importantly now, by people in none of those, actually just general wider society. And we have seen the reaction against certain corporate behaviour from people who would not be investors, would not be customers, who would not be employees, but as a social movement, consider that certain behaviour is not correct. So we've seen this entire shift And that puts a huge onus and responsibility on the leaders of business to consider all the people that it impacts and its impact on society. I hope that's succinct enough. That's great. Thank you. And one thing I thought, John, was fascinating that your background, you were a long-standing advisor to His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, on these issues. But before that, your background was in the military. While, David, you started out in advising charities on comms and you've worked in PR agencies and marketing agencies for many years. And yet you have a shared vision of, of where we are. And I'm, I'm interested in how that came about, given your different backgrounds. Well, it's funny. Uh, I don't think we're as, uh, we, we started as far apart as people might think, despite the difference in uh, where our journeys began. 
I, I've always said, I think John, as an ex-infantry uh, officer, I think maybe had more influence on his outlook than, than almost anything else, because I think John sees risk. I think you're trained to see a uh, threat, John. And I think you've devoted so much of your life and your work to establishing purpose uh, in its truest form. You, you can't help but see uh, a threat to that when organizations either misunderstand it or misuse it or simply ignore the uh, the pressure that they're going to feel or are feeling from, from different aspects of, of society. I, on the other hand, as, as a marketer, I, I'm an opportunist, uh, and I see, uh, I, I see a, a glass half full, and I see businesses and brands, when they're really able to understand what's expected of them and bring their core proposition into alignment with, uh, with what their own people, with their investors, but as uh, importantly, the rest of society expects of them, uh, that they're going to have a much better chance of, of succeeding. So whether you approach this as risk mitigation or opportunity fulfillment, I think there is, uh, there's just plenty of room for, for both. That's great. And I thought in terms of big concepts in the book, another one that was very interesting before we get into the purpose itself was you set out the world that we live in today. Many of us, many of our clients are grappling with what this post-pandemic world is. You refer to VUCA or VUCA, <laughs> how you'd prefer to say that, VUCA 2.0. Can you explain what that means and what that means for the leaders you're working with? Yeah, so I put this into the context that, I mean, interestingly, the VUCA phrase is actually a US military phrase, and it was adopted actually back in the 80s or whatever, when the US military looked at the volatility, the uncertainty, the chaos potentially, and the ambiguity around the world that they were looking at going forward. And then it was adopted by business to reflect business conditions and uncertain challenges that business leaders had. Well, if you think that was the normal state of a VUCA world, 18 months ago, or when David and I sat down to start thinking about this book, which was about that period of time, we've now had a COVID and a global pandemic for the first time where every business plan is irrelevant. Every sort of view of what was going to happen has become disrupted. But that, in a way, isn't the point. The point is that where the previous world would see a world already of disruption around the economic and geopolitical factors that business leaders always cope with, we've had this new layer put on. And this new layer, which we've never had before, has been about personal health. It's been about the worry of your family health, the communities that you care about, such as employee health and welfare, in a way that there's an entirely new, in our view, an entirely new layer of volatility, uncertainty, chaos and ambiguity, which didn't actually exist under the old definition. So we felt that actually you couldn't just carry on as if this was just another element of VUCA. It, it's ramped up into an entirely different way, not least because of the effect on business, but most importantly, because of the effect on us as individuals. And I think that's the critical reason why we felt we'd gone into a new stage. Fantastic. Now, you've talked in the book about how COVID, whilst there's been many, many downsides, as we all know, it has accelerated the sort of responsible business practices that, John, I know you and I have been talking and thinking about for many years, and also potentially created a blueprint for how business works together on what comes next. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you see the opportunity to learn from the last 12 to 18 months and where this goes to? Okay, well... Um... Yes, I mean, I think fundamentally what we've seen is the sort of amplification of good and bad behaviour in the first instance. So bearing in mind again, what's fascinating for David and I was that when we sat down to start planning and writing this book, COVID was a distant 
thing happening in China to a few people. It wasn't mainstream as it is now. We had no idea, like anybody else, that this was going to hit us in the way that it did. So, of course, very early on, you thought to yourself, is this going to be relevant? But then what ensured that it became relevant was the way in which we saw businesses behave. So in the United Kingdom, you saw some tremendous, uh, you know, they call it pivoting, of course, but you saw breweries, for example, suddenly switch to making hand sanitizer. You saw the supermarkets change their retail practices in order that key workers could get in at set times. You looked at people who were responsible businesses stepping up to the plate and behaving more so to meet those particular needs. But also what we saw was some pretty appalling behaviour. You know, we can recall things like hotel chain just sort of throwing all their employees out at the moment's notice. We could see some businesses trying to, uh, almost like World War II profiteers, you know, maximise the profit out of these things. So we have actually seen the best and worst of corporate behaviour. And so as we were writing this, our doubts, I think, fell away because we could see that this was going to be entirely relevant. And then in addition to that... I think at the core of what we're talking about here in this book is the essence of humanity. And I'm afraid, you know, this is what has really come home to us. If you think about how people have reset what they value in the world, we took an awful lot of things for granted. We took for granted that we could go and visit our loved ones and our friends, that we could hug our relatives, that we could get access to the open space that we had various things that we could rely upon, which were all swept away through this. And I believe that's a reset for us as individuals to consider not only what is valuable to us as individuals, but the role that business has to play in creating value in its broadest sense in society. And so I think as we went through this period, David and I found, I mean, David can comment as well, of course, but I think we found greater relevance rather than less through the very behaviour and the circumstances we find ourselves in. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And in fact, uh, credit to our, our publisher, uh, because there was a moment of doubt, at least on, on my part, about whether the cases we were witnessing were they, and observing, whether they would still be relevant when we, uh, if and when we push through this uh, pandemic, which wasn't that clear, you know, a year ago from uh, where we sit now. And it was to our, our publisher's credit. So I think this is actually going to hit at exactly the moment when uh, employers, businesses, government, when they're looking for uh, a way to the to the new thing, the new normal. Um, and I, I think we kind of got lucky with the arrival of the of the book in that regard. Very nice. I mean, I completely agree in terms of the what do we tackle next question. It's certainly starting to come through when we're speaking to our clients. They've realised how quickly they can act, how well they can work with people who have previously been seen as competitors on a shared agenda. And I feel quite hopeful that we're going to see this recent period shape how business responds to the next big challenge in the shape of the climate emergency. That's what we're hearing from our clients. I don't know if that's the same, same is true for you, David, on your side of the pond. Oh, uh, without a doubt, 100%. I think that uh, we actually have a dual challenge, I think, um, and we've, we've witnessed the first part, which was the pandemic. There will be more pandemics, uh, and there'll be more pandemics as a result of, of climate change. So thinking of these as, as two sides of one coin is probably a better way to uh, to, to look at it. And I, I hope and pray that we do learn from uh, what we've gone through over the last 18 or, or 24 months, because the next one is not that far off, even as we try to, to pull through uh, this one. So I am hearing big companies talk sensibly about horizons in, in decades rather than, than quarters. And uh, I hope that that's something that uh, will, will persist. I think that's right. Um, ultimately, your book is a call for leaders and businesses to be more human and more truthful. 
And that sounds great, but isn't that a little bit scary for some of the companies that you work with to get out there and tell the truth? What does that look like in practice for a leader of a major business and who's doing this well? Okay. Firstly, it's a damn sight scarier for business leaders to stare into the abyss of thinking, what the heck has the future got in store for our business (laughs) without reading this book, frankly, and without understanding the world around them? So let me say this. There is no place in modern business for narrow-mindedness. And what I mean by that, narrow-mindedness about who you should employ, narrow-mindedness about your impact on society, narrow-mindedness about the environmental challenges that we face, the market that you influence, et cetera, et cetera. Those days have gone. Actually, the responsibility of business leaders now, if they are going to survive personally, frankly, and if their businesses are going to survive, and if their reputations are going to survive, is it's got to have a much broader sense of this is what we're doing in this world. And yet, ironically, it comes down to a very simple thing, which I keep getting on a high horse about, which is that you, the whole point of this book is to get people to remind, be reminded that it's not about going and selling something to people. It's about going and solving something for people. So whether or not it's to be entertained or transported or fed or kept healthy, find that human truth that your business is in the game of solving. And once you do that, it will clarify a lot of the decision-making. It will help align things within the business that will then translate through the various truths that we talk about into the products and services and cultural behaviours that we believe will give you greater reputation and grow your market share and grow the long-term sustainable success. So, So the humanity piece is just that surely if you're in the business of putting something out into the world, you should know the problem you're trying to solve. And that problem fundamentally is a human problem, even if it is to do with climate change, because actually, of course, climate change is a human problem as well. So I don't know, David, you'll probably want to add to that. Well, yeah, no, I would just add, if if you're a business leader and you're inclined to lie or mislead, this is probably not a book, the book for you. And it's probably not one you're going to bother to to, to pick up, Um, you know, without naming names. But uh, there were businesses that said they were about racial justice, uh, but then turned around and gave money to political campaigns that were definitely not for racial uh, justice. And that was uh, embarrassing for them. Others said that they were for gender equity. And it turns out that their own boards aren't that well balanced. So that was uh, awkward for them. So the risk isn't in telling the truth. The risk is not knowing where the truth sits in your business and not understanding how to bring that forward and tell stories about it uh, in ways that are are true, you know, to, to echo the theme of the, the book. And I, and I would say one additional thing, of course, is that the thing that we're trying to address here is that if we call it the risk of purpose wash, it can either happen by accident or design. So if you're trying to do it by design, you, you're going to fail because everybody, every employee, everybody else is a, is a whistleblower with a smartphone. But the trap that we see so often is the companies get themselves into this pickle because they accidentally stumble in with great intent and communicate one thing because they believe that's the right thing to do, but then realise their internal cultural behaviours don't stack up to that expectation. And so what we're trying to do is say, look, you know, be careful about this stuff, do it, but, you know, don't fall into this trap by accident. And I think the... One of the things that you said that's really important is that this is a driver of commercial success. I think that purpose washing, woke washing trap that companies are falling into is because they think they need to do this for reputation or for marketing or for comms. So I was interested to hear more from you about how purpose can live across an organisation and how it can drive the bottom line. Well, 
particularly if you're in the world of communications, you tend to look at everything through that filter. So you think, right, this is ours. This is, you know, purpose is our marketing tool, our communication, our campaign, our reputational management. No, it's not. It's not something invented in the communication space. The communication space and communication professionals are the amplification of what happens within the business. So actually, truly human-based, truthful, authentic, purpose-driven businesses are based firstly on the leadership and the culture, but we know that it drives innovation in products and services. We know that it, it changes behaviours in terms of recruitment on the HR side and how people are treated, the diversity and inclusion agenda. It changes the way in which on the finance and governance aspect, the way in which people actually adhere not just to the rules, but go beyond the rules and report you know, truthfully and efficiently. Now, all of that together, if you take those component parts of the business, mean that actually that human truth-based authenticity is running there like the DNA in a business. Because you cannot be good in parts or truthful in parts and bad in others. This is exactly what happened with the 2008 financial crisis. You know, there were companies there who had fantastic CSR campaigns and got lots of awards for them. Well, a load of rubbish, completely, completely irrelevant to the incentivization of the senior management who were all about smashing the opposition and squeezing the suppliers and, you know, da-da-da. You can't be good and bad in one organization. This is not a curate's egg, to use that phrase. So the job of communicators, of course, is that, quite right, you build external reputation and you build market share through the quality of the products, but also the qualities behind the business. So we have a phrase which is, you know, our job is to build external value for the values held internally. And those values are very much the way in which you get the stories or you get the people who can represent the truth behind a business. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things you talk about that I very much agree with is that stories land better than messages. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, messages are are flat. Uh, they're they're one sided, uh, and they tend to be fairly blunt um, tools when it comes to communication. Stories, on the other hand, resonate. We're as as a species designed to to listen and hear stories and make them relevant uh, to our own lives. So I think the value of a consultancy like yours is to help organizations really understand their their truth and then tell stories in ways that that make sense. You know, it it might be counterintuitive given the business that that we're in, but uh, we shouldn't be at the beginning of the process. Uh, we should be early in the process, but we should get involved only after an organization is really committed to the idea that uh, they need to fully understand what's expected of them uh, before they start trying to, uh, to to communicate. And I think that's where we can be helpful, helping them listen, but um, but we shouldn't be seen as a, as, as a outsource uh, provider for a specific campaign if it's, if it's going to be inconsistent with the, the organization's true true mission, true purpose. And were there, are there any of the stories that you heard speaking to the, the various business leaders that really stayed with you, that really stuck in your mind? Well, I, I would draw two. And, and um, we were given really generous insight into the, uh, into the thinking of the business. One, uh, Will King, you mentioned him earlier, founder of the eponymous uh, King of Shaves, a business that's been around for a couple of decades. So we had the benefit of hindsight with him, for, for him to tell us how his sense of purpose ha- had evolved over time and how he'd had the, the opportunity to, to clarify what the business is, is uh, designed to do now and where it's going in, in the future. And so that's one case study I draw, draw people to uh, quickly. Uh, another, almost in the exact uh, opposite situation, was a woman uh, named Stephanie Capuano who started a skincare brand called 31st State. It's 
a couple of years old, um, and she was able to tell us how her, her sense of purpose actually evolved quite quite quickly and turned around from what she initially thought as a clean brand for adolescents. What she really wanted to do is create uh, a way for for millennials and, and Gen Z to express themselves, uh, and this was a means for, for for doing that. And once she kind of fastened on that idea, she had a much clearer idea of uh, decisions to make, how to bring the, the product to market, who to partner with, where to sell it, came a much clearer uh, proposition for. So two startups, different stages of uh, development. Um, but we also talked to some people who work for, for big organizations. Uh, a guy named John Harris for ConAgra Foods talked about how, in particular, the pandemic forced them to reevaluate how they looked at specific brands and where those brands, food brands, fit into people's lives. So they were able to uh, use their sense of purpose to adjust to a changing circumstance. So I think the point is that whether you're starting off in business, whether you've had a business for a while, or whether you're running a big multi-million pound dollar euro corporation, uh, these are useful concepts. I think that's great. I'll share one of my favourite stories in return, something I worked on a while ago now, but uh, remain very, very proud of and felt very fortunate to work on was the launch of the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan. And when we unveiled that back in 2010 in London, thanks very much. Um, one of the things that was an element of the launch day that I can take absolutely no credit for because it was not my idea was that Paul Polman came into the arena at uh, Unilever House, which some of you will know in London, with a water purification system that belongs to Unilever, having very early that morning gone and got water from the Thames which is just across the road from the office and famously not very clean, particularly not very clean back then, uh, and proceeded to drink the water that had been through the water purification system, having come out of the filthy Thames. And it enabled us to take what was quite a big concept, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, reorienting a multinational, multi-market company with a huge range of products. It gave a really tangible example of actually why this was important and why they were able to make differences in people's lives. And I can't take the credit for it, but it has always stuck out in my mind about a great way to bring a story into what was a major corporate announcement at the time. Yeah, exactly. You should be proud of that. I mean, it, it, it illustrates the concept beautifully. It's something you can remember, you can repeat, and anybody who hears it understands exactly uh, what it means and what its significance is. So uh, I wish we'd put that in the book. Maybe if there's another edition, we'll, we'll get it. <laughs> I'm available for uh, for the next version. Um, thank you. Uh, another thing that I wanted to touch on was there is a section of the book called the wow. So you have the what, you have the how, but you also have the wow. And that's how you think about measuring success. And I thought that was really a really lovely way of sort of framing it, that measurement can be the wow when so often it's bottom of the list and it's the thing you have to do at the end of the project or the end of the pitch, but no one feels exciting about it. So can you tell me a little bit more about why measurement can be a wow rather than a headache? Well, I think if you're going to make investment in any of the the exercises to to, to communicate your 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 purpose, your value proposition, um, you're, you're going to owe your investors some sort of return on investment uh, calculation. So we went to as many sources as we could find to see how do people, how do organizations measure um, their their impact. Uh, 
on their communications activity, but also on their uh, purpose investment um, more more generally. And I guess, to be honest, there's good news and bad news here. Um, the good news is that there are dozens of ways to, uh, to, to measure this and to express what your impact has been. The bad news is that there isn't quite consensus yet on the, uh, on, on the best way to do that. And I think that this might remain um, or, or should be a real priority for us on, on our side of the business, uh, Mary, to bring some, some clarity to uh, what it is we're measuring and, and, and why and, and, and how. And then how do we communicate those, uh, those either successes or, or opportunities for improvement? Because there really isn't a consensus yet. Uh, but like I say, the good news, no, no shortage of ways of, of, of doing it. And it shouldn't be an excuse for not trying to understand what your impact has been. And I think if you do this and you get it right, it also, to that point around purpose washing or woke washing, if you measure it right and you can prove what it's doing, uh, what it's doing for your business, then there's no question that this is just being done for PR or for reputation because you can show the difference it's making to the bottom line, the difference it's making to investors. Yeah, very well said. So your book is a very clear um has a very clear action plan for leaders to take. But for someone a bit daunted by this, for someone who is at the moment just in still in survival mode, still working out how to get through the challenges right in front of them, where should they start? I think the thing that actually, we list four things that actually talk about activation in the chapter Activate Now. And I think it's worth thinking about as an individual. So if you're sitting there and you think, we have to do something different in this business or in this organisation, you've got to, certainly on our basis, think about the idea. And the idea that we're promoting here, of course, is that there's a human truth at the core of why the business will do what it wishes to do. And we detail four things. Firstly, the idea resonates in the mind of an individual. So if you're the CEO of a business, you either believe in this and it's got to be done, or you don't. And nothing can be forcing you in that direction. I mean, you might be complied to do it, but actually the idea has to resonate. So if the idea resonates with you as an individual, then the individual, number two, the individual has to be capable of imagining that change in the organisation. So Paul Polman will have, when he created and worked through the business in Unilever, had to imagine that it was possible to make that change happen in that business. And the imagined change has to provide a rewarding impact. So he had to see as well, and then others had to see as well, the competitive advantage and long-term value in all its regards to go down that imagined route. And then, of course, the final aspect is that the impact has to extend the idea so that it resonates with others, most importantly, the customers. So that, for me, is a, is a path. It's there on, I can quote, it's on page 212 in the book. The <laughs> idea resonates... The individual can imagine the change. The imagined change provides a reward. And then that resonates with others. There you go. That's the pathway. Fantastic. What we probably haven't covered off is the sort of CSR to sustainability, to purpose, to that element of the journey. So purpose has not emerged from nowhere. It's had effectively 100 years of evolution. So if you think back to the Victorian businesses of old, then you had wealthy business people becoming philanthropic with their rewards. Sometimes that extended into the businesses. So famous names like the Cadbury's or the Boots or the Roundtree's, they would look at their employees in the first instance and effectively do what we would describe as philanthropy now, things like introducing education for the young girls working in their factories or nice homes to live in and things of that kind. And that really didn't move very widely in the UK until probably about the 1980s, where we suddenly got a group of companies coming together, 
concerned and alarmed about social disruption happening in our cities at that time. And they started to collaborate on what was then called corporate community involvement or corporate community investment. And then we saw the emergence of a wider agenda called corporate social responsibility, where they looked at their impact across four key areas. They looked at the community impact, which they'd been looking at beforehand, what they did in the workplace around diversity, the environmental agenda, which was arising there, and then also their behaviours in the marketplace. Now, CSR lived well, and it, of course, I advocated it for many years, and it did do some good stuff. But as I've already alluded to, it didn't change the leadership imperative about how business behaved, and it didn't change the shareholder-focused model. And that wasn't really until 2008. So purpose really grew out of 2009, 2010, but it's, it's still fairly fresh. I mean, actually, when I started my own business... In 2010, we didn't call it purpose. We were trying to come up with a language CSR, you know, point two. So purpose is only part of an evolution. But the critical thing is that alongside that, you've had an evolution in society, with society saying to business, this is what we expect of you. So it's a twofold evolution. And how do you think purpose can succeed where CSR ultimately failed? So for me, it takes a periphery and puts it at the heart of decision making. So actually, CSR sadly became effectively a profession for the few. Purpose needs to be something that is a passion for everybody. So, you know, I I would say get rid of CSR terminology in a business if you can. Get it off every business card. Because part of the problem was that CEOs could sit there and say, oh, our expert in CSR, our expert in sustainability. And they do that. My job is to run the business. No, your job is to run a responsible business that is purpose-led and has a positive impact across all stakeholders. So that's at the core of the way in which business makes decisions, as opposed to -to nice-to-haves, which address purely elemental aspects of what a purpose should be. I would would add, you're beginning to see or hear purpose discussed in uh, terms of ESG. And uh, and that's probably going to be, I I hate getting in the prediction business, but I think ESG is going to be one of the buzzwords that we use for uh, the the, the coming year or so. But uh, but you're starting to hear purpose used in that context. And whether you call it purpose or ESG, I think what that really is is shorthand for management decision-making, risk mitigation, and capacity to understand what's going on in, in, in their world. So you're starting to see those metrics applied to who gets investment, uh, who gets capital, um, and eventually who gets rewarded in the uh, in, in the marketplace. So I agree with John. CSR was a, a good starting place and a lot of good things happened. I think we've moved into a different, maybe more pointed set of activities, and uh, but we're still on a journey. It'll be interesting to see what, what happens next. I couldn't agree more. It's a very exciting time and the potential is huge. It's everything to play for as we come out of the pandemic and think about what next. Uh, So finally, we asked all of our guests this. Clarity is so important in these busy, complex times. Where do you go? What do you do uh, when you need to find a moment of clarity? That's such a great question. So I can't help but go back to my military training, actually, my mindset. And there are two things that create clarity. One is simplify and the second is focus. So in this world, which we say is complex, and we address this in the book, basically, we as humans want to add complexity to everything we do. We want to actually feed our egos by saying, this is a very complicated idea. This is a very complicated wire diagram. These words are very long and you don't understand them. You need me to translate that because I'm so clever. Rubbish. Get rid of it. Simplify it. Simplify the circumstances. (laughs) Simplify the language. 
And the second thing that goes alongside that is focus. So when there's a lot of things going on and you need the clarity of mindset, do what any soldier does when you run into a chaotic situation and there's a, all your senses are overwhelmed by the information coming at you. Think very, very carefully about what needs to be done now, what is urgent and requires your attention now. So focus on that, get it simple, get the message out there, that will create clarity. Fantastic. David, for you? So I interpreted that question quite literally, um, and I thought about where do I go? And, and many times during the pandemic and a few times in, in putting this book together, uh, I found myself going to Hampstead Heath in the, in the middle of uh, London and very specifically going to the top of Parliament Hill where I could see down below uh, most of, of the city of London and surrounding environment. And behind me, I could see uh, the green trees. Uh, and I would go with my, my dogs. And for me, that's where clarity really snapped into focus because they really didn't care and weren't interested on any of the things that were on my mind. They were just happy being there with each other, with, with me, uh, with the trees. Uh, and that usually was uh, more than enough to get me through whatever sort of unclarity or ambiguity I was struggling with. And I could go back with, uh, with a little bit clearer mind. So, so for me, Hampstead Heath was my source and side of clarity. A great place to end. Let's, let's meet there for a walk soon. I'd love to meet the dogs. <laughs> Thank you both so much for making the time to talk to us today. Thank you. Been wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to To The Point with Portland. You can find out more about Portland and what we do at www.portland-communications.com and you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Stay tuned for more episodes being released in the coming weeks.